Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. And before I go any further, let me welcome the newest member of the EWTN family. Welcome to everyone now listening on AM 750 WNDZ, which is serving the greater Chicago area. And a big thank you to our longtime radio partner, Angela Tomlinson. She has a great team at WSFI in Antioch, Illinois, and now they're partnering with WNDZ to bring outstanding EWTN and local programming. So again, welcome to AM750 WNDZ, the newest member of the EWTN family. Join me right now to help us understand uh, internal conflicts within Iraq is Graham Wood. He is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the, with the Islamic State. We talked with Graham in the past uh, about his book, and it's great to have him back on this program. Graham, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, the Many people, when the 13 U.S. servicemen were killed and uh, well over 100 others, uh, people wondered who's responsible for that. It's now apparently been determined that the Taliban were not responsible directly for that suicide uh, attack, but the uh, kind of the local franchise of ISIS. Can you describe for me... Um, what is that ISIS group? Is it directly related to uh, you know what we saw just a few years ago? Uh, yeah, it is related. I mean, the ISIS group in what they call Khorasan, which basically means Afghanistan and their lingo, uh, is a group that has pledged allegiance to the original ISIS that was in Syria and in Iraq, and they continue to think that that's um, the original group is a going thing, and then they, they pledge allegiance to it. They, they think that, that uh, they're fighting for them. But the local fight for them really is against the Taliban. I mean, you mentioned that, that 13 American servicemen died. That There were probably just as many Taliban who died in that attack, too, in okay. addition to many uh, people who were uh, um, Afghans who, who were working with the Americans before. So we're, we're looking at a group that is part of ISIS, uh, but geographically separated from it, and who are fighting at one point against the Americans and the Taliban, and now pretty much just against the Taliban locally. Uh, in the earlier uh, form of ISIS uh, that we saw, the al-Baghdadi appeared to set himself up as a, a new caliph. Uh, is there an operating caliph now? There is, but you know, when Baghdadi set himself up, uh, he eventually showed up, and that, that was one of the most amazing things that people like me who watch jihadism had ever seen, which is this guy who had been in the shadows for a while just appeared in high definition. The guy who is the caliph right now, uh, we have not seen his face. We have not even heard his voice. And so I mean, it's someone who, say, have a hard time getting a life insurance policy. So I can see why he would be yeah. uh, in occultation. But um, yeah, they're, they're still, they still have one. It's just not the same guy. I see. I see. What is the uh, what divides the Taliban from ISIS? Well, the, the Taliban are a Pashtun nationalist group. So the Pashtuns or Patans, as they used to be called, are a large ethnic group that straddles the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the Taliban, they are an austere and religiously motivated group, but they're basically backwoodsmen. Uh, they're not highly educated. They're great fighters. And if you would ask them, especially when the movement was born, what's your goal? They would say it would be to create an Islamic homeland where we can live. That's about it. And 
if you asked ISIS the same question, it would be more like we are going to bring back a past that uh, has been extinct for a thousand years uh, and that will bring about the apocalypse and we're going to cover the earth in, in our in our uh, in our empire. So you, you can see for the Taliban, it's a very local goal. Right. Uh, and for ISIS, it's worldwide domination. So that, that's the that's the, the first distinction between the two. Uh, so, the, are the Taliban threatened by the presence of ISIS there, or is there any sense that the Taliban could become the local uh, franchise for ISIS in Afghanistan, so ISIS then can go on to do its work in other uh, sectors of the world? ISIS and the Taliban absolutely hate each other's guts. Okay. So I, I don't think that it's likely that, that the Taliban will sign on to ISIS's project. So, you know, when the Taliban came into power in, in Kabul so quickly, so surprisingly, I think most people were surprised at how few people they started beating in the streets and killing. Basically right. nobody. The one exception to that was they went straight into those prisons and killed a bunch of guys who were formerly with ISIS because right. ISIS had been quite cruelly torturing and killing Taliban members and putting it on video. So there is really bad blood between these groups. And there's also ideological difference. Where ISIS has said about the Taliban, in addition to just ridiculing them mercilessly, that they, they've also said that they are apostates, that they don't even know their their religion well enough to continue to be Muslims, and therefore they they, they all have to die. So I, I really think that when we think about these two groups, the worst case scenario is not that they start working together, because that doesn't seem very likely at all. Mm -hmm. it, it's that. Afghanistan will be torn apart as it has been for decades in the past by civil war. And right now, the, the, one of the major rivalries is going to be the Taliban and smaller groups, uh, smaller, very vicious groups like ISIS that will prevent them from uh, imposing the order that they wish to impose. I see. You mentioned earlier that the Taliban, uh, people expected that the Taliban would regain control. There's going to be uh, you know, executions all over the place. There's going to be blood in the streets. We didn't quite see that. Uh, is, this a, is this a new Taliban? Is this a new and improved version uh, from the Western point of view? Their PR is slightly improved, but, you know, in 1996, the Taliban took over Kabul. And if you look at the way that first few days played out, it is almost exactly as we've seen in the last few days since they took over this time. That is, they took over and they said to everybody, everybody, don't worry, we're going to be fine. We're not going to take revenge. We're going to be nice. We're going to be merciful. Everybody should keep on going to work. Um, and, you know, don't head for the exits. Don't try to become refugees from Afghanistan because we have we have to all, you know, work together at this. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what they said then. And then they spent the next five years immiserating the country, leading it in the most brutal possible way. And indeed, in the first days after they took over, when they said they weren't going to, to um, you know, be cruel and harsh, they went and grabbed the former president who was hiding in the UN compound, pulled him into the street, tore chunks off of his body, stuffed those chunks in his mouth and then hung him, hanged him from a, a lamppost. Yeah. So even yeah. when they say that they're not vengeful, um, they can be um, very mean. Yeah, yeah. How do they expect to govern? Uh, I mean, I, are they largely connected by uh, tight kinship clans? You know, what, what, uh, what kind of internal governance uh, 
does the Taliban have? So the, the Taliban in the past have been most successful when their um, sort of their their competition in the governance business is chaos. Uh, you know, they came to power when there was a civil war, lots of different factions around the country, and their governance looked like this. They just show up in the middle of town with a, a, a Toyota truck full of guys with guns, and they say, everybody behave yourselves or we'll shoot you. So that's a kind of harsh justice that's actually better than the total chaos where you don't know who's going to shoot you or, or, or <laughs> what's going to anger the nearest warlord. Mm-hmm. So that, that's where the Taliban has really excelled. Um, where they have not excelled is creating a modern state that someone would actually want to live in compared yeah. to, say, even Pakistan or Uzbekistan or Iran. So what they've inherited is a much richer, better developed Afghanistan than they have ever had in the past. And I think the odds are against their ability to maintain the kind of prosperity that, that the United States has, has given Afghanistan by pouring you know, trillions of dollars into it and right. trying to uh, trying to build it up over the last two decades. Um, well, what we'll really see about their their ability to have changed in the last 20, 25 years yeah. is whether they can take that state and then have the um, the flexibility to say, all right, we, we see that this is working and we want to keep it working. Um, there's no sign that they're able to do that, but I'm sure they will try. Uh, do they have any means? It's commonly said that the, the, the Afghanistan is rich in natural resources, $3 trillion worth, uh, copper, lithium, uh, and talk that China has... Uh, uh, leases uh, to eventually do some mining there. Does the Taliban have any uh, capacity to establish diplomatic relations with Beijing? Um, and do they have any um, competence to create large-scale uh, mining activities? That's a great question. You know, before ISIS, or excuse me, before the Taliban were invaded, Afghanistan was invaded in 2001, uh, the Taliban were actually very closely exploring um, a relationship, a formal relationship with China for exactly this purpose mm-hmm. of enriching themselves and enriching China, right. allowing China to go in and get the natural resources. And you know what happened? You, you may remember, this is in April of 2001, the Taliban decided that these thousand plus year old Buddhas that were carved into oh, mountains yes. in Bami on Afghanistan. I do remember that. Yep. They decided we don't want to have these on our soil. These are, are idolatrous and they aimed their rockets at these and they, they blew them smithereens. Yes. Um, this is a, a, a piece of world patrimony belonging to every human being and right. it was an atrocity. Yep. And you can imagine what it meant for the partnership between the Taliban and China, which, you know, it, is historically a largely Buddhist country. And so the China had to back off and say, all right, maybe we can't actually work with these guys. Yeah. So there's a real question about w- whether the Taliban can put aside their ideology for a little while when it's in their own best interest to do so. In the past, they have not been able to do that. Yeah. I think the other thing to remember, too, is you know we talk about billions of dollars in lithium or whatever right. in Afghanistan. It, you know, it's it's cleverly hidden underneath the ground, and uh, you need a lot of infrastructure, people to go and and dig it out. So yeah. um, it's it's not an easy thing to do, and so far nobody has been able to do it. So 
I, no. I, I've been I, hearing I about right. that for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I sort of thought you, you need to have stability to, to induce uh, nation states or uh, businesses to come in there and invest in that kind of activity. Did the U.S. ever succeed in um, stabilizing things in Afghanistan uh, so that U.S. industry could come in there and begin, uh, you know, mi- doing any mining or extracting local uh, natural resources? The short answer is no. I mean, there's no, um, there was no, there was no time when Afghanistan was was so uh, well governed and safe that it was worth um, building roads and for the United States to go in that way. Yeah. Uh, didn't even come close. Graham, let me thank you once again for taking the time to be with us today. I appreciate your work. I look forward to your articles, and uh, hopefully, we'll talk again soon. Hey, thanks for having me. Greenwood, we'll have uh, the articles from the Atlantic uh, connected in our uh, Press to Guest archives. I'm Al Crest. I'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. George W. Bush, former President Bush, spoke at the Flight 93 memorial service uh, on Saturday in Pennsylvania. I thought his words were important. Uh, Important not because they were elegant, at times they were inspirational. I think they were important because of their modesty and his refusal to defend his many difficult choices that he made during his presidency regarding the war on terror. He clearly wasn't there to defend his legacy. He was there, though, to remember what was best in America. And I wanted to share his words with you because a lot of us are asking, you know, 20 years since 9-11, are we a more united nation? And the answer, of course, is no, uh, we aren't. There's far more polarization and fragmentation today than there was after 9-11. But uh, last Friday, I gave a small uh, talk, which was drawn from my words from 20 years ago. And I realized that I could not give that same commentary in 2021 like I was able to give it in 2001. Uh, My certain attitudes of mine have changed about America and the likelihood of its future. There's one line, though, in the Bush uh, statement. It reads like this. 20 years ago, we found in different ways, in different places, but all at the same moment, that our lives would be changed forever. Well, this was especially true of President Bush, who was elected to be a domestic policy president. Education, cooperation between faith-based organizations and government service organizations, continue the good economy that Clinton had managed. Foreign policy was not his strength, not at all. His dad was a great foreign policy president. He had been ambassador to the U.N., ambassador to China, head of the CIA. But not George W. He had, had a he started a fairly small oil company in Texas. He owned the Texas Rangers. He'd been governor of Texas. He was not a foreign policy president, but Providence again threw him into uh, really an extraordinary uh, foreign policy adventure, or as some would think, misadventure. Let's listen to his words and reflect on them regarding America, twenty years after. 2001. 20 years ago, 
we all found in different ways, in different places, but all at the same moment, that our lives would be changed forever. The world was loud with carnage and sirens, and then quiet with missing voices that would never be heard again. These lives remain precious to our country and infinitely precious to many of you. Today, we remember your loss, we share your sorrow, and we honor the men and women you have loved so long and so well. For those too young to recall that clear September day, it is hard to describe the mix of feelings we experienced. There was horror at the scale, there was horror at the scale of destruction and awe at the bravery and kindness that rose to meet it. There was shock at the audacity, audacity of evil and gratitude for the heroism and decency that opposed it. In the sacrifice of the first responders, in the mutual aid of strangers, in the solidarity of grief and grace, the actions of an enemy revealed the spirit of a people and we were proud of our wounded nation. In these memories, the passengers and crew of Flight 93 must always have an honored place. Here, the intended targets became the instruments of rescue, and many who are now alive owe a vast, unconscious debt to the defiance displayed in the skies above this field. It would be a mistake to idealize the experience of those terrible events. All that many people could initially see was the brute randomness of death. All that many could feel was unearned suffering. All that many could hear was God's terrible silence. There are many who still struggle with a lonely pain that cuts deep within. In those fateful hours, we learned other lessons as well. We saw that Americans were vulnerable, but not fragile. That they possess a core of strength that survives the worst that life can bring. We learned that bravery is more common than we imagined, emerging with sudden splendor in the face of death. We vividly felt how every hour with our loved ones was a temporary and holy gift. And we found that even the longest days end. Many of us have tried to make spiritual sense of these events. There is no simple explanation for the mix of providence and human will that sets the direction of our lives. But comfort can come from a different sort of knowledge. After wandering long and lost in the dark, Many have found they were actually walking step by step toward grace. As a nation, our adjustments have been profound. Many Americans struggled to understand why an enemy would hate us with such zeal. The security measures incorporated into our lives are both sources of comfort and reminders of our vulnerability. And we have seen growing evidence that the dangers to our country can come not only across borders, but from violence that gathers within. 
There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. But in their disdain for pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit, and it is our continuing duty to confront them. After 9-11, millions of brave Americans stepped forward and volunteered to serve in the armed forces. The military measures taken over the last 20 years to pursue dangers at their source have led to debate. But one thing is certain. We owe an assurance to all who have fought our nation's most recent battles. Let me speak directly to veterans and people in uniform. The cause you pursued at the call of duty is the noblest America has to offer. You have shielded your fellow citizens from danger. You have defended the beliefs of your country and advanced the rights of the downtrodden. You have been the face of hope and mercy in dark places. You have been a force for good in the world. Nothing that has followed, nothing can tarnish your honor or diminish your accomplishments. To you and to the honored dead, our country is forever grateful. In the weeks and months following the 9-11 attacks, I was proud to lead an amazing, resilient, united people. When it comes to the unity of America, those days seem distant from our own. Malign force seems at work in our common life that turns every disagreement into an argument and every argument into a clash of cultures. So much of our politics has become a naked appeal to anger, fear, and resentment. That leaves us worried about our nation and our future together. I come without explanations or solutions. I can only tell you what I've seen. On America's day of trial and grief, I saw millions of people instinctively grab for a neighbor's hand and rally to the cause of one another. That is the America I know. At a time when religious bigotry might have flowed freely, I saw Americans reject prejudice and embrace people of Muslim faith. That is the nation I know. At a time when nativism could have stirred hatred and violence against people perceived as outsiders, I saw Americans reaffirm their welcome to immigrants and refugees. That is the nation I know. At a time when some viewed the rising generation as individualistic and decadent, I saw young people embrace an ethic of service and rise to selfless action. That is the nation I know. This is not mere nostalgia. It is the truest version of ourselves. It is what we have been and what we can be again. 20 years ago, terrorists chose a random group of Americans on a routine flight. 
to be collateral damage in a spectacular act of terror. The 33 passengers and seven crew of Flight 93 could have been any group of citizens selected by fate. In a sense, they stood in for us all. The terrorists soon discovered that a random group of Americans is an exceptional group of people facing an impossible circumstance. They comforted their loved ones by phone, braced each other for action, and defeated the designs of evil. These Americans were brave, strong, and united in ways that shocked the terrorists, but should not surprise any of us. This is the nation we know. And whenever we need hope and inspiration, we can look to the skies and remember. God bless. That was George W. Bush uh, speaking at the Flight 93 Memorial Service on Saturday in Pennsylvania. Here's a line worth pointing out. In the weeks and months following the 9-11 attacks, I was proud to lead an amazing, resilient, united people. When it comes to the unity of America, those dames seem distant from our own. Uh, I think most people would agree with that. And I think most people, though, would also agree with, after 9-11, millions of brave Americans stepped forward and volunteered to serve in the armed forces. The military measures taken over the last 20 years to pursue dangers at their source have led to debate. But one thing is certain, we owe an assurance to all who fought our nation's most recent battles. Let me speak directly to veterans and people in uniform. The cause you pursued at the call of duty is the noblest America has to offer. You have shielded your fellow citizens from danger.